Hi guys and welcome to the Match Day Weekly Podcast. This is the first episode. My name is Nathan Bannister and I'm joined by my co-host Luca Rizzo. Hi guys. Uh, because of quarantine and no football being on, we're going to start this episode instead of our usual uh, review of the weekend's matches. We're going to do a team of the season so far from both of us. Uh, and we're going to start in goal. I'm going to go first. Uh, and my choice is going to be Dean Henderson of Sheffield United. Uh, I think he's been brilliant this season. 10 clean sheets, 22 goals conceded. Th- only three keepers have conceded less than a goal a game. And that is Alisson, Cash, Michael and Dean Henderson. And Dean Henderson being up there of those two has just showed you what a prolific season he's had. First season in the Prem as well, which is amazing for a youngster like him. And i got to say, I think next season he should take over from the reins over De Gea at United. De Gea's had a great career at United, but time's over. He's made too many mistakes lately and I just think it's time for him to move on and for Henderson to take his place. Luca, who have you gone for in goal? Well, I've got um, the Palace goalkeeper, Vincente Guaita. Uh, he joined two seasons ago now for, um, on a free transfer from Getafe. He's had an incredible impact. Uh, the defense, Palace defence has showed up in the 27 games he's played this season. He's had nine clean sheets. Um, he's only conceded 28 goals. So that's only just over a goal a game for a team, mid-table team like Palace who often get sucked into relegation battles. I think that's a great stat. Also, he, in the new goals prevented stat, which calculates goals that they should have saved versus goals that keepers sh- um, shouldn't have saved, basically incredible saves. He's prevented 6.28 goals that would normally have gone in, uh, which is the highest by two goals over the next average person, which was uh, Dubravka. Uh, to give you a bit of contrast, signing the same summer for Chelsea was Kepper. He's on minus seven. That means he's conceded seven goals that would normally not have gone in uh, due to bad goalkeeping. So it shows what a bargain Palace has got out of him. And I think he's just been massive for them this season. Yeah, when you get a goalkeeper on a free, he's had a he's better than a eighty one million signing Chelsea made to replace Courtois. It's just quite a extraordinary yeah, thing. No. I mean, it just shows how Chelsea really messed up their panic buying. Um, you know, they had, they had yeah. the chance to buy Allison as well. They had a sixty million fee agreed of Allison, but they wanted to keep Courtois, and Courtois hadn't left yet, so they chose Capo over Allison for more money. And you can just see what a screw up that was. Yeah, I mean, uh, anyway. look at the impact Alison's had. Uh, yeah. Moving on to right back now. Uh, I think this is a fairly obvious one for everyone. Yeah. Although United United fans may want to say it, although United fans may want to say it's Aaron Wan-Bissaka, I've gone for uh, for Trent Alexander-Arnold. 12 assists. It's a record as a defender for most assists in the season. 19 years old. Just been fantastic for Liverpool since he came in. Klopp's really done something with that player because it's amazing to see how, how well he's just become the new modern fullback and how he he basically plays as a right winger, but it works in the Liverpool system. I'm sure you agree, Luca? Uh, yeah, I've gone with Trent as well. It's, again, you say there's 12 assists. That is unbelievable. He's also made the third most passes in uh, the Liverpool team, which show he's so involved in that attacking play. He's only behind Van Dijk and uh, Rodri uh, for Man City. He's just so instrumental. He keeps the ball ticking and... His crossing ability is the best I've ever seen. It's unbelievable. I know it's just it's it's crazy to see a right back do that. And I think there's been a lot of suggestions that they should move him to midfield. And I just think 
why would you change something that isn't broken? If it's not broken, don't fix it. So I just leave it as oh, it yeah, is. They got a. They got. There's a, no need, is there? Yeah, exactly. And it just what it's like. So I wouldn't. Yeah, change that. Um, centre back. I've got. I'll, I'll, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, I've gone Virgil Van Dijk as my right centre back. Uh, well, I just said, didn't I? For uh, two thousand five hundred passes, that's five thousand more than Rod- uh, five hundred. Sorry, uh, more than Roger in second place. Uh, the, the impact he's had since Liverpool, since he joined Liverpool. I mean, people might say, "Well, he's seventy million quid." I think uh, seventy million quid. That's one of the best buys in Premier League history. Twelve clean sheets this season, twenty-one goals conceded. I mean, that's a lot less than a goal a game. Unbelievable. Um. He's also an aerial threat, actually. Uh, he's got four goals this season from corners. I mean, he's just a leader. And I think when Henderson moves on, which I think is pretty soon, I think, uh, he, he will take the armband and well-deserved. Yeah, it's just... it's Everyone kind of raised eyebrows, including myself, when he joined from Southampton, because £80 million for a defender there was unheard of. But you... You just have to say it's worth the money. Liverpool's scouting team have done a really good job in recent years, and I have to say Van Dijk is one of the, the proof of that. Uh, I've also put in, in the centre-back, uh, and it's not much else to be said. Uh, so moving on to our left centre-back, uh, I've gone for uh, Jack O'Connell of Sheffield United. Again, another Sheffield United defender, but I think it's hard to keep him out when they've been that good defensively, and Chris Wilder set up his team, making them so hard to beat. Uh, he's there's you could pick any of the Sheffield United centre backs as Luke will tell you in a second, but I think Jack O'Connor is the one that steps out. If you look at the stats, he has the most um, recoveries out of anyone on that team. Uh, I think he has the second most passes out of anyone on that team, and it's just with the with the system where the centre backs overlap and go past the full backs, it's it's really unique, and I think O'Connell does that really well. Who have you gone for, Luca? Uh, I've gone for another Sheffield United centre-back, uh, Egan. Um, I haven't seen much of him play this season, but the stats are in his favour. Uh, obviously, huge amount of tackles put in. He's uh, very high up. And I've spoken to a lot of Sheffield United fans over uh, social media, and they have been telling me, look, the other two, Basham and O'Connell, have been brilliant, but Egan has just risen to a whole other level this season. And that's why I've gone with uh, him. At left centre, uh, left back. Um, I thought this was actually the season where the Premier League has had a lack of quality at left back. But um, I've gone with Andy Robertson. Uh, he's had a relatively poor season in my eyes, or, or so I thought until I looked at the stat. He's still got seven assists, and I think he's just so consistent and definitely miles above the next best left back in the league. Um, yeah, I don't think there was really a debate there. I've also gone for Andy Robertson. I think you say he's had a poor season this season because last season he was up there with Trent on the assist charts and now Trent's like surlapsed him and just become crazy and yeah. kind of fell behind. But to be fair, keeping that standards up of a defender getting that many assists for that long is, is very unheard of. So I think you could have, you could have gone for Ben Chilwell of last season. He's also been very good. Uh, there was a few suggestions of Van Arnholt, although zero assists and really say much. Um, but I, I think Robertson has to be in there. Uh, and our defence and goal is all consist of just two teams, Sheffield United and Liverpool, which is really interesting. Oh, and for Luca. And Palace and goal, yeah. Um, 
Uh, midfield, Nathan, who have you got as your holding midfielder? In our- uh, uh, holding midfielder, I've gone for Wilfred and Didi. Been absolutely pivotal to Leicester this season. And I think there's just one stat I have to say which will absolutely define how important he's been. Their win rate without him, and especially their blip over January and Christmas, is when he was injured, they had a 33% win rate. And when he's not injured, they have a 92% win rate. So the absolute massive gap there is ridiculous. Unheard of for a player to be that influential. And it just shows how when Kante left and they brought in Didi, there was a lot of pressure on him to fill that role because Kante had been so spectacular at Leicester. And you've got to say he's been a very worthy predecessor and just been absolutely brilliant. Who have you gone for, Luca? Um, I've gone for Mateo Kovacic uh, of Chelsea. I think the level he's reached this season... Is unbelievable. Um, he came last season on loan and uh, from Real Madrid, and I thought he was all right at best. They bought him for fifty million this summer. And I thought um, however, I do think that season he's just been unbelievable. He's got one hundred and two touches per game. Uh, which is just shows how influential he is for Chelsea. He's got 90% pass accuracy. One goal and three assists, which doesn't say the best about his uh, attacking possibilities for Chelsea, but I think he can get even better. He's still young, and I think this guy's got an incredible career ahead of him. Yeah, i got to say, Kovacic has been really important for Chelsea. It was looked at a bit of like a panic buy when they signed him in the summer because he was the only one they could sign because the buyout clause and the transfer ban. But he's really surpassed what happened last season under Sari, and Lampard's really got another great player playing well, just like he has with the whole Chelsea team. Uh, who have you gone for as your central midfielder? Um, I've gone for Henderson. I mean, people talking about him as player of the season, I thought that was a bit over. Um. Yeah, he's he's just been incredible in that midfield. Team of the season was a shout too far for me, but he just dominated the midfield. He's been so influential, especially as a leader. I think they've got two real leaders in Milner and him in midfield. And yeah, that's simple truth. Yeah, I, I have to put Henson there as well. The, where I disagree with you is I think he should be in the player of the season contention. You've got a lot of names of Mane, De Bruyne and Henderson being thrown around. And I think those are the three who should be up there. If you look at how a lot of criticism he's got in recent years is that he passes backwards always, especially for England. And he's really changed that about his game and looks more to progressing the ball nowadays. And it's just been fantastic this season, what he's been doing there. Uh, anyway, uh, who would you like to go for in centre mid? Or um, your other centre mid? I'm going to go with... Kevin De Bruyne, and I don't think that's a surprising choice at all. I mean, he's top of the assist tally. He's created a uh, second highest amount of chances behind only Emiliano Wendy of Norwich. He's just a, an absolute beast of a player, and we've known that. Last season he was injured, and that was really unfortunate for Man City. And maybe people could claim, you know, he was injured and they won the league. Look what happens now that he's back. But I, I think he makes City a far better unit. I think there's other reasons. And I'm sure we'll get on that in the later episode why City have failed this season. But I don't think that's anything to do with De Bruyne coming back. I think if De Bruyne was in last season's team, I think City would have won the league a lot more comfortably. And um, yeah, he's definitely one of the best players in the Premier League. 
Yeah, I, I also put De Bruyne. No, you can't really keep him out when you have 24 goal contributions from central midfielder. It's just it's, it's unheard of again. But um, I just I think he's up there in the best players in the world right now. You, you, he's been incredible since he came back. And although City may not have missed him in the Premier League that much last season, I'm sure they probably would have beat Spurs if he was there for the Champions League. So um, I think we've all got to put him in there. Uh, so we're moving on to left wingers now. Uh, I'm going to start, and I think this is another fairly obvious one. I've gone for Sadio Mane. 14 goals, 7 assists. Been brilliant this season in the player of the season talk. And I just, I think that that Liverpool front three works so well together. Him and Salah just, and Firmino just feed off each other so much. He's become a brilliant player, which we didn't really see him be that much at um, Southampton. Who have you gone for left wing, Luca? Uh, of course, it has to be Sadio Mane. I mean, just he's been unbelievable this season. He's taken it to a next level. I mean, if you look, especially at the start of the season, his finishing ability, I think, is up there with some of the best strikers in the world. And he's playing off the left wing. He can shoot. He can dribble. He can pass. I mean, he's just the complete and perfect left winger. And I think. What we're going to see is either him or Salah probably being shifted off to one of the Spanish giants, probably Real Madrid in the next two seasons. And I think Liverpool will replenish the squad and look into youth. But I think in the years that he's got left at Liverpool, they'll win heaps of trophies. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, moving on to our strikers, we've gone for different ones here. Uh, I've gone for Jamie Vardy up front. I think two more goals than anyone else in the league. 0.75 goals per game, 19 goals overall. Again, that Leicester side has been brilliant this season. And it's that run where he had, which I think was nine goals in a row, it was brilliant. He struggled a bit, but that was again because indeed he was out of the team, which the team relies on so much. And he's just been amazing this season. You look back at the 9 0 win against Southampton, got a hat trick in that game, and you can just see why everyone rates him so highly and we're going to miss him because he's internationally retired and we could sure well do with him in the Euros who have you gone for up front Luca? Um, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang of Arsenal I think he's just showing why he's one of the best strikers in the world so consistent I mean he's wrapped in a huge number of goals and um, I think he probably will leave Arsenal in the summer which is a shame for them because I think Without him this season, the stat says they'd be 19th in the Premier League without his goals in the season. And obviously, there'd be someone else in to score the goals. Lacazette's definitely not a bad deputy, but I think Arsenal would miss him. And uh, he's sort of saved what otherwise would be an absolute train wreck of a season. Oh, it's still been a pretty train wreck of a season anyway, even without him. But we could have been catastrophic without him. Uh, right wing, Luca, who have you gone for? Uh, Mohamed Salah, I mean... Do I need to talk? He's been unbelievable for three seasons now. Uh, maybe the best right winger in the world. Depends if you count Messi as a right winger. Um, just so effective off that right. And even when he looks like he's having a bad game, he'll go and score an absolute screamer. It's the game against Salzburg in the Champions League perfectly sums that up. He missed about five massive chances. And then with about 10 minutes to go from on the byline, he hit a curling left footer into the bottom corner. I mean, it was unbelievable. Yeah, I've got to put Salah in there again because of the reason you said, I mean, 16 goals, six assists, just a brilliant season for him once again. And people call him a one-season wonder and he's proven that he wasn't despite that fantastic season and just been an absolutely beautiful signing for Liverpool. Anyway, so now that we've done our team of the seasons, we're going to be moving on to uh, the back pages of the recent newspapers. 
Uh, Luca, here in an article, it says United will not spend big, Woodward says. What do you think of that? Well, basically, what the article is saying is that Man United have actually been affected by the coronavirus crisis. Um, and so they won't be able to spend as big as they would have liked in the summer transfer window, assuming that the summer transfer window does actually go ahead. Now, the reason for this is because matches are behind closed doors and um, basically a lot of revenue isn't coming into Woodward's bank account. Um, I think it's not going to be business as usual for a lot of clubs and I think also clubs won't be as willing to sell players because they don't know if they've got the money to replace them. So I think it's going to be a difficult summer for Man United who really, I thought, we're having a really positive second half in the season. If they got some good transfers in this summer, they could have started pushing onwards and upwards next season. But I think this has really dented that for them. And um, yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, if we also look at uh, another back page about um, Liverpool and the COVID-19 match, uh, that is, of course, talking about that Atletico Madrid Round a 16 second leg. Um, they uh, there were 3,000 Atletico Madrid fans at the game that uh, that night. Uh, Madrid had already had a huge outbreak and was already about to go into lockdown. So the fact that that match was allowed to go into head, and since then a huge number of COVID-19 cases have appeared in Liverpool. There's going to be an inquiry into why on earth that match was allowed to go ahead, and I mean it's really sad because. What a night that was for Atletico Madrid and to have that spoiled by the fact that they might have injected, uh, infected loads of people with the virus and ultimately caused loads of death is, is really upsetting. Yeah, Marcus Llorente's heroics is going to be overlooked by the fact that the coronavirus is just, again, ruining what has been a great season of football, I think, for a lot of people. Um, I think I think the it really hits hard, though, looking back to United, about... Um, that they won't be able to sign a lot of players because, as you say, they've had a really positive second season. And if they could add just a proven goal scorer to that squad, uh, another midfielder to go alongside Bruno Fernandes and Pogba, and maybe another defender, they could become a real force and get back to what they once were. <laughs> and I think, I think Ole has done what is actually quite a good job recently, and he's received a lot of criticism, but he's gone through that with his team. Uh, and I think it's just. Football's going to change a lot over the next few years because of this massive catastrophic effect of the coronavirus. There's two more stories I wanted to pick out. Uh, this one is about how the Premier League plans to return. They're asking that as soon as the lockdown ends, they'll be playing matches behind closed doors in a specific amount of venues. Now, the request from the uh, sports secretary was that all these matches would be free to air on live television. So that could mean a, a company like the BBC getting involved and every single Premier League game would be live on television. They'll be played in only a few stadiums that have been proved, approved as coronavirus-free. So um, you'd see matches being played all throughout the week so they could get them done. And uh, players would be staying in hotels and constantly being tested. But let's just remember, this can only go ahead if the country has enough tests to be able to do this safely, because ultimately the public goes before football. Um. And finally, we're going to go to uh, Newcastle, which is our next section. Uh, Newcastle, of course, about to be taken over. Um, and this story basically says, actually hasn't done as bad as a lot of people think, but ultimately it was time to go for him. Um, 
It was not the match of dreams, Ashley and Newcastle. The relationship was never a good one. Uh, he was often hated by the fans, despite a positive start. And over the 13 years, he's people have been saying he's been interested, or at least the rumours would say, to sell them for 12. So it's, it's good that this deal's finally gone over the line. But I think the thing that people worry about is who's actually gone to buy Newcastle. And if we look at who is buying Newcastle, it's this Saudi Arabian group, uh, which is funded by the Crown Prince now. The Crown Prince has been involved with various human rights scandals, the murder of the journalist back in Turkey two years ago. I mean, he's a very dodgy guy. And it begs the question, do football fans... Would they take anything for success? And I mean, that question has come into question when talking about the Man City fans recently. But I think it's even more so here with Newcastle. I think their owners, their new owners, are not the greatest people. And what? Yeah, what it, it begs Newcastle? the question of what you come first, ethics or football? Because when a player, when a owner, although he may bring great things to the club for his money, he has many human rights controversies where he's done horrific things involving the country that still has the worst human rights in the world, some of the worst sexism and homophobia in the world. Although this may be a time for Newcastle to get a very bad owner out, it's interesting whether they'd want to go for, they want to keep that bad owner and as long as they know that he wouldn't be doing these horrific acts. Although to be fair, Mike Ashley wasn't the best guy himself. Yeah, exactly. Mike Ashley isn't, but, isn't exactly a princess or a, or a god. He. If you look at his company, Sports Direct, they were one of the first companies to try and stay open during the coronavirus outbreak to squeeze a few pennies out of the company. I think he's a horrible guy. But mm. um, if you look at what Saudi Arabia done, I don't think you can really compare it. I think Saudi Arabia is a very, very worrying state that this could be getting involved in our football. But the thing is, with Newcastle fans having, what, 20 to 15 years of hair under Ashley, I think most of them will take anything. And if Palace were to be taken over by a big money, big money owner, I don't know if I'd, I don't, I don't know what I'd do. If, 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 if you turn it down, yeah. It's very hard to turn it down when you, when you want to. But yeah, it's, it's interesting though, because obviously if the owner goes to go through with the wealth that he has, which he has, um, if he becomes the owner, this is a very interesting statistic. Out of all 20 Premier League owners put together, all 19 Premier League owners, and you compare them against his wealth, he would still have 176 billion more than it. So his wealth statistics are absolutely crazy. And although it may be bad for the human rights stuff, Newcastle are a club who will have a rather high wage bill and rely on match revenue a lot to get um, to sustain their club. So with coronavirus going on nowadays, much like other clubs, they need another way to sustain their finances. And the Saudi Arabian owner would obviously be able to do that very easily. So it's it's important that they do get a way to do that, but the ethics is still questionable behind you. It's also very easy to get carried away with these things because Newcastle have been linked in the papers in the last few days to players like Mbappe, uh, Luka Jovic, um, you know, like incredible names. Everyone's being linked with Newcastle at the moment. Pochettino is a manager and when these names are being thrown about your football club, it's hard not to be excited. But when you look at things, the the Crown Prince is a murderer and a, a sick and twisted person. So do you take 
the money or do you try and stay strong? Because we also know that by buying a season ticket, you are pumping money into this guy's bank account. So do you want to be funding a mass murderer? If you ask me that question now, no. If Palace were taken over, maybe yes. Maybe I would, but it's just a, such a difficult topic because as much as you love your football club, you can't... You, you can't, can't compromise money. your morals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like it's... Moving, moving back to the coronavirus issue with um, playing behind closed doors, although that may be sustainable in the Premier League, in the lower league clubs, it's... I don't. I think a lot of clubs would go bust if they are forced to play behind closed doors because mm. they rely a hundred percent on match revenue for finances. And especially, there's a lot of clubs. Um, I'm a fan of Doncaster Rovers along with Nottingham Forest, and I know that Doncaster Rovers are in a, quite a bit of financial difficulty right now because of the lack of match revenue. And I think it'd be unfair to try and make those teams finish the season without being able to get a sustainable income to sustain their club as well. Yeah, and there's another story here just talking about that, that there's been another £10 million, uh given out to League 2 clubs who are struggling um, because they're just not making them the, the bills pay at the moment and ends up meeting. So, real worrying times for football at the moment. Um, yeah. Should we move on to our it, VAR review? Yep, of course, I'd love to move on to that. So, me and Luca have looked at a few, a number of clips and we've thought about how VAR has affected the overall view of the Premier League. And I think, for me personally, I've come to the conclusion that this season has been rather catastrophic in terms of how VAR has gone. It's been, there's many, many cases where they've probably just straight up got the wrong decision. And there are a lot of complaints about fans saying that they don't want games to be stopped. The passion of football is scoring a goal. That's what separates from other sports because you have that moment of ecstasy and relief when you score a goal and if that's all be taken away because once someone's toe is offside just seems completely unfair oh uh, yeah uh, definitely and that's why today we've picked out three decisions and if you're listening at home I would recommend you go and watch these decisions if you're not familiar with them um, let's start with that Jack Grealish one uh, I was actually at the game it was Palace against Villa in August maybe the first of September anyway early in the season and uh Palace have scored a uh, late goal in the 80th minute and we're winning 1-0. Sellers Park is bouncing. Palace hit the bar. We should have been two or three up realistically. And in the 93rd minute, Drak Grealish sets off on a run. And now I'm not going to describe the whole thing to you, but basically Jack Grealish tumbles on the edge of the box. Now, whether he was fouled or not is quite a close one. I personally don't think he was fouled. Nathan... You think he was fouled, didn't you? I I think he was tripped there. Um, but that's not my overall problem with this clip. My overall problem is that it gets called back for a dive and Grealish oh, sorry, doesn't appeal. We, we need to say, he goes, uh, the ball is lost from Grealish after his tumble. It falls to his teammate who smacks it in the back of the net. Now, the goal does not stand wide because the ref has blown, blown his whistle. Sorry. Um, the ref has blown his whistle for a dive by Jack Grealish. And because of this, VAR can't get involved and give the goal because he's blown the whistle before the goal is scored. So the goal is automatically ruled out. Now, whether he dived or not isn't really the problem here because 
VAR could have given the penalty and they clearly didn't see that. The problem for me is that how can VAR not see that this is the wrong decision? And why are they not allowed to go and fix this? Because it could be very easy for them to go into here and say, look, the ball hit the back of the net, the whistle, the game was still active, realistically. The, the ball might not have been in when the ref blew the whistle, but they were still playing the game. The players were still playing. So why can VAR not go and say, and this is coming from Palace fans, so this goal was this um, disallowed goal is brilliant for the club, but why can VAR not go in and go, this is a goal, sorry, or this is a penalty, when it clearly should be able to? Yeah, it's a very difficult decision because there's so many problems with this. The first one being, is it a foul or not? It's definitely not a dive for me. It may not no. be a foul, but it's 100% no, it's not, not a dive. It's definitely contact. But the main issue is that Grealish doesn't actually appeal for a penalty, showing that he's not diving. He, he tries to continue with play, so it could just be that he simply tripped up and then Landry scored after. However, I don't think this is a VAR issue, as by the laws of a game, you can't continue play as as the, after the whistle has been blown. So although they may have scored and players continue playing, it'll be incorrect to, dis- um, to allow that goal because the whistle had been blown. However, well, I think I, that I, has to be a change. For me. There should be a change in that. But For me, that goal has to stand. Yeah, I I think it should stand, but I don't think this is a VAR mistake. I think this is a refereeing mistake, and I think there's a difference between those two things. But I think the it's also shows both. how how the Premier League has mucked up VAR for me. Because if I was watching actually the videos on it's on um the Premier League Instagram, if you go on there, it's in the highlighted stories. And it's uh, Alan Shearer explaining how the Premier League is going to use VR. And it's just, it sounds like a great idea, but I think it's just been so different from that this season. I think there's a big communication issue between the referee and the um, VAR. Like in this situation, the referee should let play on, see what happens and then have VAR review it and see if it was a dive or if it was a legal goal. I don't think he should make that decision completely in the moment. I think you should either wait for the ball to go out of play or wait for the play to move on to a different phase of play. So I think there needs to be better communication between those two things. And I just think this is a terrible refereeing clip. And anyway, moving on to the next clip, we have chosen a very, very controversial one in Calvert-Lewin's last-minute winner against Manchester United. Luca, what do you think about this goal? Okay, so let me just quickly describe it to you. Uh, the ball's played into Richarlison, who taps it down for Sigerson. Sigerson is tackled by Wan Bissaka. Some would say it's a bit late. Uh, to me, it looked like he got the ball. And I think it's a foul. Sigerson goes down in the box after having got his shot away. The keeper saves it. The falls to Galvalouin, who hits a rebound, which goes off Maguire and into the back of the net. Now, VAR have a look at this. And Sigurdsson, who, let's remember, had just been fouled and or he thought he would just have been fouled and was lying on the floor, was lying offside. He realises the shot is coming towards him and he's offside and pulls his feet away just in time. So there's no contact with the ball and Sigurdsson's feet. But the referee gives it as offside. For me, you can't do that. What do you think, there? I I think the main question in this clip is... is De Gea's view being impaired by Sigurdsson being in an offside position? That's the question, because he doesn't touch the ball, so that's the only other way he could be interfering with play. So I think you have to look at it from De Gea's point of view. As the ball, the ball rolls past Sigurdsson's foot into the net from Calvert-Lewin's shot, 
is he impairing his view? And I think that's something that is incredibly hard to see because we don't have a view from De Gea's eye point. And when it's that close of a scenario, I don't think VAR should be disallowing a goal like that when you purely can't know if the ball was, ball was blocked by a view like that. No. It's a last-minute winger, and this is a massive complaint with VAR that it stops the elation. You see I mean, all you Everton Yeah, exactly. You look around Goodison, you see Everton fans going crazy, and all of a sudden, it's pulled back because of a very minuscule offside decision, which is incredibly close, and that's just a massive problem with VAR for me. Yeah, and also, you know, that could have been a penalty as well. So there could be two ways that Everton get a goal there. So it's just really the problem with VAR is, is it's objective. It's always going to be objective. Unless you get a robot to do it for you, there's not, it's not ever going to follow the letter of the law. Uh, so, you know, there's going to be the VAR person who thinks that's a foul, and there's going to be the 500 Man United fans who were there that day who think it's not a foul. You know, like, that's the problem with refereeing. And what's the point in having another human opinion? And surely the ref gets the final decision. If you've got two human opinions, for example, you've got I don't know, Mike Dean and in the VAR and you've got John Moss on the pitch. John Moss says goal and Mike Dean says no goal. Who's to say Mike Dean gets the final decision just because he's VAR? I don't I don't think that's fair. Exactly. As as a referee myself, I would hate for my decision to be not final. Like I should if I'm comfortable that I got the right decision, my responsibility and my power shouldn't be taken away because someone disagrees. If the referee's job of football is to make the decision, then he should have that final say. Oh, yeah, this, because this is, a, this is a very controversial clip, and I think it's just another problem with VAR right now. What are you going to say, Luca? Um, if you listen to the Peter Crouch podcast episode, and he's done one with Mike Dean, um, which is really interesting. Anyway, Mike Dean said he didn't like the idea of VAR, but he actually finds it very helpful because he can just be told in his ear, look, you got it wrong there. But what if he hasn't got it wrong? And then surely it's a double mistake, right? Because not yeah. only is he, he's, he's, there's no trust in his judgment and he loses confidence in his own judgment. So therefore, if you look forward, maybe he's let slightly to whistle and just wait for VAR. And what's the point in having the ref on the pitch? if he's just waiting for VAR to do everything for him. Exactly. So there's so many problems with VAR, and we'll see even more of them in the next clip. The final clip we looked at was Giovanni Lacelso's stamp on Azpilicueta's leg. Or was it Jorginho's leg? And in the game Chelsea versus Buzz. Yeah, Azpilicueta's leg. Uh, let me describe this um, red card decision for you. So Lacelso is running towards the ball. The ball gets to Azpilicueta first, and he moves it on. But... Lacelso, whether it's accidental or not, stamps on his leg after the ball is gone in a, in on his ankle, and it looks incredibly bad. Studs up. I think it's a clear red card, and VR just don't get it. And what, it's just another thing where you have to be consistent with your decisions. And a red card like that, that is so purely obvious to me, should always be a red card. And that's the whole point of having VAR there to make the decision more consistent. What do you think, Luca? I think it's all about consistency, like you were saying. And if you look, only two weeks before, I'm pretty sure, Palace played Arsenal and Aubameyang was sent off for a similar challenge. I think rightly sent off. It was a high challenge, studs up on the ankle, incredibly painful, putting another player at risk. Is how VAR with 50 different cameras in the stadium all can go ultra slow motion. Did not see that this was... 
a red card offence simply because he was putting another player's health at risk. And you cannot put a player's health at risk like that. It doesn't matter if he meant it or not. Um, Aspilicueta is yeah. very lucky not to have a broken am- ankle and be out for a year. Like, you cannot do it's, that. Yeah. And it says, it says on the VAR screen, no red card, no serious foul play. And I don't understand how that cannot be serious foul play. It's excessive. It's an excessive force foul, which is a red card. And it's clearly putting the other player in danger. And I just think that you have to you have to award that. And if VAR is not there to award that, what is VAR really doing with this? I mean, that begs the question, where do we, where do we go forward with VAR? Because I think it's, it's, it is needed in football. I think, I think you can't take it out now that it's gone in. They're not going to take it out realistically. But how do you improve it? And that talks about, um, you were saying earlier about Wenger's offside rule. Just explain that to the listeners. Yeah, so a massive complaint lately has been that goals are disallowed for one toe being offside, which doesn't gain an advantage. And I couldn't agree with that more. I think that's a wrongful way to disallow a goal and the rule should be changed. So Wenger, in his new position at FIFA, has proposed a rule across all leagues that um, the way offsides work from now on is if any goal-scoring body part is in line with the last defender, they are onside. So if you leave a toe behind the last defender, you are onside. And I think that would work much better because you don't have goals being disallowed where they don't gain an advantage. What do you think about it, Luca? Well, I was just being the devil's advocate and saying, look, but surely you'd still have the marginal because you'd have his toes just offside. Look, he's offside. But and people would, people would get used to the rule and start being more frustrated by that. I mean, humans are quick to forget. So we'd, I think people would start getting... Frustrated with the toner. I think, for me, the, the solution to this whole problem is have a have a little sort of margin of error because the software is only accurate up to a certain... I think it's only accurate up to two millimetres. So if, for argument's sake, Zaha's toes offside by one millimetre, then how do you know if he's offside if the technology can't guarantee he's actually offside? You can't give decisions that small. And I think if you gave maybe a five-centimetre margin of error, so if Zaha's toes five centimetres offside, then the goal will be given because it's just too close to call and he's not really gaining an advantage on the defender by being that that small amount into the offside world. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lack of trust in referees nowadays. And they've tried to make the offside rule as clear as possible in the sense that if any goal-scoring body part is offside, it's offside. So that it gives less refereeing decision towards it. And I think a more sensible rule would be if you feel the get player has gained a sizable advantage by being in an offside position, then it's offside. That's what the rules used to be. And although it makes it more difficult for referees, I think it means that you have less situations like the Roberto Firmino goal against, um, I forget who it was now, I think it might have been Wolves where he scored, and then it got disallowed for the tiniest margin. And I think that's just, it doesn't feel right when you're a fan who scored a, what is almost a fair goal. And it's disallowed because of, because this, this guy's foot size is an 11 instead of a 10. It's just, it just feels yeah. completely wrong. Yeah, no, so, I, I just think there needs to be more trust in English referees nowadays. It worked, like, it just... It works better when the referee gets the responsibility and it's his decision 
And it also lets them be comfortable with their mistakes because they feel that it's their mistake. They've done it themselves and it's not the rules faults or the VAR's faults. And it's just, it's a big problem right now. Yeah, I know. I'd agree. And I think the way you go forward is that I think, VAR will improve over time. I think that's when... And fans will get used to VAR over time. But also, I think there's a problem with the speed. I think VAR, if it's not done within two minutes, it's too close. Just scrap the decision. Go with the original on-pitch on decision because you can't leave fans waiting for three minutes on the pitch to say, oh, no, his toenails are offside. Uh, that's not a goal. Um, I've personally been in that situation at a football game when... You know, you've been sat in the stand not knowing what's going on, having watched a goal go in, going, what on earth was wrong with that? And then it was, it was Palace against Liverpool. And are you pushed Lovren in the back so they claim, but Lovren shouldn't go down when a, a five foot seven man pushes a six foot four man? Physics would decree that he can stay on his feet. So, you know, it's it's really difficult because. As a fan waiting in the stadium, it's just so nerve-wracking, that experience. Yeah, and I think it's been implemented a lot. I think it's been implemented a lot better in other leagues. And I like the German system in the Bundesliga where the referee goes over to the VAR um, screen and looks at it for himself. Because, yeah. again, that puts the responsibility and the power back in the referee's hand. Should, we should be making the decisions. I mean, definitely. And, I think the technology can be useful. I think we're just using it wrong. I think the monitors help because at least you've got a final decision and I think the player the fans in the stadium could get behind it more if the ref goes on over to the monitor and goes right he's had a look at it at least I know he's made a good decision and he's had two looks at it. he's had a look at it in real time and he's had a look at it on the monitor then he can make his decision he thinks he still thinks that's not a goal then he's a bad referee and you sack him but like yeah it's it's there's a lot of there's a lot of problems and it's definitely been implemented better in other leagues and I take the Champions League last season as an example in which I think it was implemented perfectly and did its design job and it overall I think was a massive success and we need to take aspects of that from the um, Continental League and put it into English football to make it more sustainable because right now no one's happy the people in favour of VR aren't happy because of the way it's being implemented, people out of favour of VAR and happy because we have VAR and we need to find a compromise between those two. Definitely. So I think that's where we're going to leave for today's episode. Uh, thank you for tuning in, guys. Uh, this has been Nathan Bannister and Luca Rizzo with the Match Day weekly Match Day podcast. Tune in again next Monday uh, for our next weekly release. Bye and hope you've had a